And we're now going to study Acts chapter 7. And the book of Acts, or this particular chapter specifically, deals with some difficult subject matter. And if we have a heart for truth, we'll accept it. If we don't, I think we're going to be challenged by it. And as Winston Churchill said, men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing ever happened. If we're guided by the Holy Spirit, that will not be our case. Let's begin with prayer and then let's get right into Acts chapter 7. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we, we thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit and how it guides us into all truth. And we pray, Father, that the truth will set us free and that we will really have a love for truth. And we pray that you'll be with us uh, this evening and, and give us that appetite, Father, to be like the Bereans, to search the scriptures, to see if these things are so. We thank you, Lord, and we ask your blessing now in Jesus' name. So let's get right into uh, Acts chapter 7. We left off uh, in chapter 6 with uh, Stephen being falsely accused by, by men who were uh, hired to uh, be false witnesses. And now the high priest asks him, he says, Then said the high priest, Are these things so? So now you have a chance to defend yourself, Stephen. And he said, Men and brethren, listen. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham. So, so this is fantastic. Uh, he starts with a story, and stories are very powerful. The storyteller is very powerful, and people will listen to a story, especially if it's about them, and, and puts them in a good light. So the fact that he's now talking about Abraham, the father of the faith, uh, they're loving this. They know that they're the chosen people, they're the special people. Uh, they will be in their positions of power because of their lineage. Uh, down from, from Abraham. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Quran, and said unto him, Get you out of your country and from your kindred, and come into the land which I will show you. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Quran. And from there, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein you now dwell. So he's giving them the, the, the background. They would all agree with this. They would understand that that's how they've come to inherit this land. And he, he gave Abraham none inheritance in it. No, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him when as yet he had no child. So here's this kind of awkward situation where God of Israel, the, the Almighty God, the Creator, has given this promise to Abraham, yet Abraham has no children, and Abraham never stepped foot in the land, and yet we know God is faithful. God spoke on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring them into bondage, and entreat them evil 400 years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. And after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob and Jacob begat tw the twelve patriarchs. As I'm reading this, I'm, I'm just mindful that this is the longest sermon 
in the book of Acts. And we have to ask ourselves why. It's entitled Acts of the Holy Spirit. Stephen is not a, uh, sorry, Acts of the, we entitled it Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's entitled Acts of the Apostles. And Stephen is not an apostle. And yet Luke takes pains to, to gather this sermon that's, that Stephen the deacon gave and gives him more airtime than anybody else as far as uh, sermons go. So let that kind of percolate in the back of our minds as to why. Why, why is um, uh, Stephen's sermon taking such a prime space from this author's perspective? Why does he give him so much space? So he goes on to say, uh, verse 9, And the patriarchs, moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him. So this now, so he starts out with them fully agreeing, and they probably don't even realize that this is the first body blow. So it's going to be a several body blows, and then it's going to be a knockout punch. Uh, so they're going along and feeling very special. Yep, yep, we're tracking with this. We know we're the special people. We're the people that God has chosen. And yet, what he's so saying here is, even though God chose the patriarchs, He was working in Joseph to set Joseph up as a ruler over them and not only as a ruler but as a savior and yet they were moved with envy they didn't want him having that position of rulership and so he's setting them up now to understand that Jesus Christ is like Joseph he is a ruler and he's a savior and he's a ruler for your benefit he's a ruler so that he can give you salvation and yet they reject him and so this is the first body blow to show them that just being the, the being chosen as the people of God is no guarantee that you are actually the people of God, that you can actually become the people of the devil, even though God chose you. So the, the patriarchs were moved with the devil's uh, spirit of envy against Joseph, even though Joseph was chosen by God. And here, in, if we look at that uh, in verse 37 uh, of, uh, sorry, chapter 37 of Genesis, to look at the account that he's referring to, it says, for behold, Joseph is speaking, we were binding sheaves in the field. He's telling him about his dream. And lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaf stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. I'm just telling you what I dreamt. And his brethren said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And yet this dream is for their benefit. Joseph is being raised up for their benefit but they're moved with envy, they're moved with hatred. And he dreamed yet another dream, so two witnesses. He dreamed another dream and told it to his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to you on the earth? So, so the father's a bit annoyed. He doesn't understand it. It doesn't say that he's moved with hatred or envy. He's just annoyed and it's causing problems in the family. And his brethren envied him. But his father observed the saying. So his father wasn't moved with envy, but the brothers were moved with envy and hatred. Even though they are the descendants of Abraham and they are selected by God. Back to Acts 7. And delivering him, that is Joseph, out of all of his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction. And our fathers found no sustenance. 
But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent our fathers first. And at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him, and all his kindred, uh, seventy-five people. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died, he and our fathers, and were carried over into Sichem, and laid in the sepulchre that Abraham bought for a sum of money of the sons of Emor, the father of Sichem. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. So God always fulfills his promises. Till another king arose, which didn't know Joseph. The same dealt subtly with our kindred. And evil entreated or treated our fathers, so that they cast out their young children to the end that they might not live. So we see this uh, constant... Uh, destruction of children coming from the devil and here we see no kind of beginning in Egypt or even before that uh, with uh, Bob with Babylon but here we see them wanting to destroy the children and, and basically rid the Egypt of the nation of Israel in which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house three months and when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. So they're tracking with this. This is all the history that they know, and they love this. this again, it's reinforcing that they're the special people. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words and deeds. And when he was full forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Here comes another body blow. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. So he's protecting now the, the Israelite. For he supposed, as Joseph did, that, that they would just accept this, that he's the one being raised up for their benefit. He supposed his brethren would understand how that God by his hand would deliver them. So, so he would be raised up as a ruler and a deliverer. Joseph was raised up as a ruler and a deliverer. Moses is being raised up as a ruler and a deliverer, and he thought they would understand this. But they didn't understand. And the next day, verse 26, he showed himself unto them as they strove, and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, you are brethren, why do you wrong one another? So he's got the vision, he wants to bring the nation together, bring the nation out of bondage, and like, we shouldn't be fighting one another. But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away. So, so he's, he's done his neighbor wrong, thrust him away, uh, that is Moses, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Well, the answer is God. But he doesn't understand. So what makes you think you're better than us? Will you kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? This is a, a threat. He's basically saying, I will report you to the Egyptian authorities. Then fled Moses at this threat, at this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when forty years has expired, so now he's eighty, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush, when Moses saw it. Sorry, let me just turn off this uh, phone. There we go. So now he, he saw it there, he wondered what the sight is, and as he drew near to it, behold, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, 
I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses trembled and dared not behold. So they're tracking with this. This is lovely. Then said the Lord to him, put off your shoes from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people, which is in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and am come down to deliver them. So God will always deliver his people. We don't always know how, but he always will, because his promise is faithful, his promise is true. And he made this promise to Abraham, and he will fulfill it. So he will deliver them. And in this case, he's going to deliver them through Moses. And now come, I will send you into Egypt. This Moses, so now here, here comes the next body blow. So first it was Joseph, set up as a ruler and a deliverer. Now it's Moses, set up as a ruler and a deliverer. This Moses, whom they refused, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? The same, the same Moses, did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out. After that, he showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. So this is the Moses, the one that they rejected. He's the one that brought them out and then had all these miracles that he was showing them for, in, in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, Okay, so now this is the same Moses that they rejected, that, that delivered them, that did miracles among them, that said to them, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall you hear, him shall you obey. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spoke to him in the Mount Sinai, and with our fathers, who received the lively oracles to give unto us, to whom our fathers would not obey. Here comes the next body blow. To whom our fathers, even though they're descendants of Abraham, they wouldn't obey him, but thrust him from them, and in their hearts they turned back again to Egypt. So, so they were in Egypt for 400 years, in bondage, the cruelest of treatment. They were crying out for a deliverer. God sent them Moses, they rejected Moses. God established Moses as the ruler and a savior, a deliverer, and, and delivered them from their bondage despite their rebellion. And then he told them that there's going to be another prophet like me, to whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them. And in their hearts, they turned back again to their slave masters, saying unto Aaron and to the religion of their slave masters, saying unto Aaron, make us gods to go before us, for as for this Moses, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So this uh, pagan religion, which they were involved in in Egypt, which came out of Babylon from Nimrod and spread to all nations. Egypt was just one of the nations that it spread to when God divided the languages. They took their Nimrod concepts with them to their different lands. And so the, the, the Nimrod religion came into Egypt and they turned back to it because they didn't know what Moses was taking too long. And they made a calf in those days, so this would be the Egyptian uh, bull god with the, the, the horn, like a crescent moon, and the sun in the middle. And we do not know what has become of him. They made, him, they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idol, that is the, the Nimrod god. 
and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. And then there's a lot of uh, uh, sexual immorality involved in this worship. Then back to Acts 7 here, 42. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. So, so this Nimrod religion, which was in Egypt, which was in Babylon, which went to Assyria, which went all over the world, uh, it's all about worshiping the host of heaven. And he gave them up to do that. As it is written in the book of the prophets, O you house of Israel, have you offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of 40 years in the wilderness? Is that what you did? Yeah, you took up the tabernacle of, of Moloch. This is the, uh, the Baal, the, the pagan god, called different names in different nations. Here he's called Moloch. Uh, you took up the tabernacle of Moloch. Instead of worshipping me in the wilderness for 40 years, this is what you did. You took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god, Remphan, figures which you made to worship them, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. So something terrible happened here to this chosen nation, the, the, the ambassador nation of God, the, the people who were to lead all the world. God said to Abraham, in you shall all the nations of the world be blessed. His idea being then to set up this model nation that would bless the whole world. Instead of teaching, leading Egypt, they went back to Egypt and allowed Egypt to, to, to lead them. And, and here they're worshiping the tabernacle of Moloch, uh, which is where they sacrifice their, their babies into the furnace of Moloch. Uh, Moloch has this appetite for, for babies, human sacrifice. And so they were, the Jews and, and the Israelites were performing human sacrifice. And notice here, this is something that we can just read over, that they were worshipping the star of their god, Remphan. So we've got to ask ourselves, who is Remphan? Who is Remphan? Let's first turn to Wikipedia to see what does it say about Remphan and here it says Remphan if we just uh, he's talking about the Greek it's the Hebrew Kayun or Kiwan the Greek forms are probably simple mistakes for the Hebrew and so they're, they're translating from and notice here it says Kiwan is probably the old Babylonian Kawan, Kayawanu the planet Saturn hmm so the Israelites turned back to their gods and turned back to the worship of Saturn, which is what Egypt, the Egyptians were doing. The Egyptians were worshiping Saturn. And in fact, every nation worships, uh, there's, every ancient civilization, there's evidence of them worshiping Saturn. And, and you know, even every religion worships Saturn. And in the Christian religion, we have Christmas, which is really based on Saturnalia, Saturnalia. And so these ancient ideologies, they have long shadows and they, they cascade down into our time. And even proof of that is our days of the week. You know, we've got Sunday, which is the day of the sun, Moon Day, Twees Day, the god of Twees, uh, Woden's Day, the god Woden, Thor's Day, the god Thor, Phrygia's Day on Friday, that's Venus, and then Saturn Day, Saturday. So, so these ancient ideologies are, are still with us in the present time. And, and here we see uh, Egypt uh, worshipping Remphan and the Israelites turning to Remphan. So he says you're worshipping the star. Now the, the Jews have this star that they call the Star of David, 
which I think it's, it's on their flag, the, the Israelite flag, uh, we all accept, okay, this is the Star of David, and we even see Christians wearing this Star of David. But this is the Star of Remphan. This has absolutely nothing. What, what does this have to do with David? Where, where is evidence that David ever had this star? There is no evidence. In fact, the only evidence we have of where this star comes from is not from David. David was faithful in all his heart. He totally turned to God. Solomon was a problem. And if we look at the scripture here with Solomon, in 1 Kings 11, it says, For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians. So there's always this male-female energy in, in pagan worship and male-female union in pagan worship. And that's part of what this uh, hexagram is. It's uh, two triangles, one inverted, coming together, showing the male-female uh, energy coming together. And, and Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord as did David his father. Then did Solomon build a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. So all these nations have these different gods, they call it different names, but it's the same ideology that they got from Nimrod. And they're all worshiping Nimrod, who is a proxy for the devil. And they're all in the same, it's the same religion, going across all civilizations. And so with these women that he married, they're, they're in, instead of him taking the truth out to these nations, as God intended, he's bringing their false ideologies into Israel. And likewise did he for all his strange wives, and burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. And then you'll see here that Israel then is corrupted by um, uh, Solomon's idolatry. And so now God says through Amos to the Israelites after Solomon, I hate, I despise your feast days. So they've now mixed up their religion. They're keeping the feast days, but they're worshiping Nimrod. And I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. So the incense, he's not going to accept it. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings. So they're trying to worship God, but they're worshiping Nimrod as well. I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take you away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your vial. So, you know, we can be worshiping God and doing all this, keeping the feast, singing, and we think that we're doing a great job, and God has rejected us, as he has Israel, because we're mixing uh, pagan worship with, our, with the worship of the true God. But let judgment run down as waters, and righteousness as a mighty stream. Have you offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years, O house of Israel? But you have borne the tabernacle of your Moloch and Kion, your images, the star of your God, which you made to yourselves. Therefore I will cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. So from way back, because of Solomon, they started dabbling, and Solomon got into the occult, he got into magic, and in fact, if we look at, in, in um, Wikipedia, if we look at the Star of David, let me just turn this on for a second, if we look at the Star of David, it says here, the, the Star of David, if we just scroll down, is generally recognized, is a generally recognized symbol 
of modern Jewish identity in Judaism. It has nothing to do with David. It, it, its shape is that of a hexagram, the compound of two equilateral triangles, which is a, a, an occult abomination. It's basically saying, as above, so below, male-female energy coming together. Uh, unlike the menorah, the Lion of Judah, the Shofar, the Lulav, the Star of David was never a uniquely Jewish symbol. And you see that here. When you look at these uh, different uh, hexagrams, they're in every culture. They're in every false religion because it's an occult, pagan, very filthy symbol. And, and when Solomon dabbled with his wives, he brought that symbolism and that magic into Israel. And they continued with it, and then God rejected their worship. And if we look, then this is uh, it's actually called the, the Seal of Solomon, not the, um, not, not the um, Star of David. So it's known as the Star of David, but it's actually the Seal of Solomon. And so here, when we look up the Seal of Solomon, it says here, the Katam Suleiman is the signet ring attributed to, to King Solomon in medieval Jewish tradition, later also in Islamic and Western occultism, and, and even the, um, what are these Freemasons called? They're, they make a big deal of the Seal of Solomon and the hexagram, uh, you know, the idea of putting a hex on somebody. It was depicted either in a pentagram or a hexagram shape. Uh, the latter is also known as the Star of David in Jewish tradition. It has nothing to do with David. Uh, the ring variously gave Solomon the power to command demons, genies or jinn, or to speak with animals. And it goes on to say uh, what it did for him. So, so he dabbled. And then that's what caused the uh, Israelites to get into that as well. And so this, uh, star, this symbol is an occult s s symbol of the worship of Moloch and the, the god Remphan. And we saw that Remphan is actually Saturn. And so this, this star, quote, uh, I'll call it the Seal of Solomon, um, is actually also um, picturing a cube. And you see that these Saturn worshippers make a big deal of the cube. And that's because Saturn... And so you'll see these occultists all over the world make a big deal of the black cube. The black cube is a big deal for them. And certainly we, we see that today uh, with, with the Islamic tradition. And so the other thing that's really interesting is every nation worships Saturn. And when they look into cosmology and also legend, what they find is Saturn was once, the, it seems like it was once the center of the solar system, that it was the true sun. And then something happened and it was replaced by our sun today. There seemed to be some catastrophic event and it's replaced by our sun today. And so here we're looking at the Hajj and, and today all these Arabs and all these nations are clothed but before Muhammad, they were doing this. They were worshipping the black cube, and they, they would do it naked. The same way the worship of Baal, that there, it's a male-female energy and, and, and sexual religion. And so it's the, the, the very same thing. And so we see now this depiction of crescent moon and star, male and female energy, in every culture. It's in every culture, every ancient culture around the world. And what they're realizing now is that star, or that, that the, the sun and moon, that sun is not our sun. It's actually when they study these cultures, it is actually speaking of Saturn. The ancients 
were worshipping the sun called Saturn. And Saturn is the only planet that actually has energy and can heat the objects around it. But they say something cataclysmic happened and caused uh, Saturn to be replaced by our current sun. And that actually lines up with scripture. If we look at the scripture, and we look at, uh, I'll actually come back to it later, Genesis 1, um, verses 1 to 3, where it's very clear that something happened, and God establishes the sun and says, let there be light. But there was light before, and I'll come back to that later, to show that it does line up, that it's perfectly um, feasible that Saturn was the original sun of our solar system, and then it was replaced. And, and somehow Satan is turning everybody back to Saturn. And, and these Saturn death cults, these Saturn occult movements, and they're all over the world in every culture, they're all about control. They're all about the same Nimrod agenda that we see in Genesis 11, where he establishes a religion and a political movement to control and capture mankind and harness them as slaves. And we see that everywhere. And you'll see, with, we, we have to escape this false religion and come into a relationship with Christ, and fundamental to true Christianity. We see it here in Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, that is Christ, because the Lord has appointed, anointed me to preach good news unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. So there's this Saturn occult, death cult, worship, a control system, control agenda, and Christ comes to release us from this control, to proclaim liberty, to the opening of the prison. And in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 17, he says that now the Spirit, the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, there is liberty. So we're, you know, people are rejecting Christ, but what are they getting in place? They're getting bondage. They're getting uh, control where every movement, every, every day is dictated to you and you're manipulated. Christ doesn't want that. He's given us free will and he wants us to exercise our free will and come to love him. Come to realize how beautiful he is, that, that he only wants good news for us. And so we, we, he doesn't want robots who just bow down to him because we're told. He wants people who, who love him. He wants a family. And so wherever true covenant relationship with God is, there's freedom. God doesn't want us to be forced. And yet, wherever there's worship of Saturn, there's force and compliance and occult worship and human sacrifice. Continuing in Acts, verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen. which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house, howbeit the Most High dwells not in the temples made with hands, as says the prophet, heaven is my throne, Earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has not my hand made all these things? Now notice, when he gets to Solomon, that's when everything changes. 
So he's, he's answering a question, and he gives them this story, which they're going to agree with. They love the story. But through the story are these body blows showing them that God is constantly trying to help them, constantly trying to bless them, constantly trying to deliver them, but that requires government, that he's setting somebody over them in order to lead them to liberty. And every single time, they reject, they reject, they reject, they push back, they hate, they're filled with envy. And then he comes to Solomon, which Solomon was a disaster. Yes, Solomon was chosen by God, but he was a disaster. And when he comes to Solomon, then finally now he says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. So they were tracking this story thinking it was a story about how wonderful they are and how chosen they are, when in fact it was a story about their rebellion. Despite God choosing them, they have always had this spirit of rebellion and rejecting the prophets that God has sent them. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You do always resist the Holy Spirit. It's in your DNA. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom you have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. You have not kept the law. So remember this whole story, this whole sermon, he's answering the question which we began with, which was, are these things so? Tell us, are these things so? What things? Remember when last week we were in Acts uh, chapter 6, and in verse uh, 13, he says, they set up false witnesses which said, this man ceases not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. So, so here's this man speaking to them looking like an angel, maybe like Moses did, shining that way. But they want to know, is it true that he's speaking against the temple? He's speaking against Jerusalem? Is he speaking against the law? Is he, is he going to, to, to change the customs that Moses uh, sent them? And so he starts telling this story, which basically juxtaposes Israel against the law. It juxtaposes Israel against Moses. It juxtaposes Israel against the holy prophets. And so when, when they're saying, you know, um, are these things so? His answer is yes, they are. I am speaking against you. I am speaking against this temple. You trust in this temple, but you, you trust in lying words, as Jeremiah said. So he's actually showing them that the prophets were constantly speaking against them. They have a heart of rebellion, and he's coming in the spirit of the prophets to tell them, you are in rebellion. And so yes, these are not they're not blasphemous words, but I am speaking against this temple. And I am telling you that Jesus Christ has, is coming to punish you if you do not repent. So when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Now, you know, we, we think that Christianity needs to be this sort of mamby-pamby, softy-tofty, you know, just, just be so soft. That's not Christianity and that wasn't Jesus Christ. Christians follow Christ. There's a time to be soft. There's a time to be quiet and hold your peace. There's also a time to speak out. And Luke is writing here about Stephen, who is speaking against him in, in the harshest of ways. 
you stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart. And he's speaking to the high priest, he's speaking to the, uh, all of the people there, all of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But the, Luke takes pains to tell us, Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit. Stephen, his face is shining like an angel. That's how much he's filled with the Holy Spirit. So this um, act is an act of the Holy Spirit. It's an act of love. And we know it's an act of love because when they kill him, he says, forgive them, Lord. They don't know what they're doing. So clearly, he is speaking out of love for them. He, he wants them to repent. They're, they're in a bad way. They're heading to a terrible place. And he's trying to pull them out of the fire. And he's actually, again, Luke is showing that it's the acts of the Holy Spirit, which means it's the acts of Christ. And, and, and this is very much like uh, what Matthew records with, with Jesus in Matthew 23, where he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, the very same people that Stephen is addressing. You hypocrites, for you are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but are within full of dead men's bones. And, all, and of all uncleanness, you're, you're horrible inside, even though you have this religious appearance, you know what's in your heart. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous unto men. So, so men are looking at you and they're, they're taking it. They're, they're thinking this is your holy people. But God knows. But within, you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Woe unto you. When, when Christ says woe, this is what Peter's trying to save them from. Uh, sorry, but this is what Stephen's trying to save them from. That's why he's, so, he's trying to shock them out of their, their complacency. Woe, Christ, Christ is pronouncing a curse on them. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Oh, really? Well, you killed Christ and now you're about to kill Stephen. Wherefore, you are witnesses unto yourselves that you are the children of them which killed the prophets. So, so the, Christ is saying, you're acknowledging that this is in your DNA. You're acknowledging that you, that you are the children of those who killed the prophets. You're just saying that you wouldn't do it. Okay, well, let's see. Fill you up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you generation of vipers. How can you escape the damnation of hell? And this is what Stephen is trying to pull them out of. And sometimes we, as Christians, following Christ, inspired by the Holy Spirit, sometimes with wisdom, we may have to be harsh. We may have to be tough, tough love. But it always has to be from a place of love, not a place of anger. And, and, and Stephen wasn't angry, he was, he was loving. He wanted to shake them out of their uh, comatose state. Therefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men. So Stephen was a wise man. And scribes. And some of them you shall kill and crucify. So Christ is telling them, this is what you, you say that if you were in the time of Moses, you wouldn't have behaved like your, your forefathers. Okay, You're, you, you've born, Christ is saying you've borne witness that you are of the children of those who killed the prophets. Now to test you, I'm going to send you prophets and wise men and scribes. And some of them you will kill and crucify. And some of them you shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. Now the apostles were told, you need to be my martyrs. I'm gonna fill you with the Holy Spirit. You need to go and proclaim this message. So they knew what was coming. Christ told them over and over again, this is what's gonna come. Yet the Holy Spirit gave them that boldness to preach the truth. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And part of that freedom is freedom from fear of death. 
because we understand the resurrection. Christ was resurrected. We know that we will be resurrected. He's the firstborn from the dead. We know that we will be born again. Therefore, I'm going to send you, because you said that you wouldn't do this, and I know that you would, I'm going to send you prophets. And they're going to bear witness of me, and wise men, and scribes, and some of them you'll kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. And we're watching that unfold in, in the book of Acts. That upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth. When Christ says, woe, woe unto you, he's not kidding. And this is what Stephen's trying to save them from. You know, it's actually hatred. If you know that somebody's heading to this kind of curse, and you show up and say, well, I guess, I guess you just have a different opinion than me. And, uh, oh well, I'll just keep quiet. That's hatred. What Stephen did is love. And, and we need to put some backbone in Christianity and get rid of the wishbone. You know, I, I wish things were different. Put some backbone where the wishbone is and put some boldness and some Holy Spirit and have wisdom to know how to answer. Sometimes you answer a fool according to his folly. Sometimes you don't. But the Holy Spirit should give us that wisdom. But we should certainly not be weak and just soft and just pathetic. We should have the power of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. So he says here, this, this is what's going to come upon them. All the blood of the, all, all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from, from Abel. And all of that blood is going to come upon them. That is quite the curse. From the blood of righteous Abel, there it is, unto the blood of Zechariah, son of Barachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You that kill the prophets and stone them which are sent unto you. How often, again, this is the love that Christ has for them. How often I would have gathered my, your children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings. But you wouldn't have it. You're the ones. So you're going to accuse Stephen of speaking against Jerusalem. No, you're the ones that have done it. You're the one who have spoken against the prophets and the holy ones and even Christ. And so... Stephen is just delivering to you the message that Christ delivered to you, but you don't want it. The same way your, your, your forefathers didn't want the message from Joseph, your forefathers didn't want the message from Moses, and your forefather Solomon went back into uh, all of the pagan religion of the world around them, and even before then they were constantly going back to paganism, and you're the same way. Instead of coming into the truth, the true relationship with, with God, you've gone after paganism. And so, no, I'm not speaking against the truth. I'm speaking the truth. You're the ones who are acting against the truth. And he's giving them the words of Christ. And you'll see again, um, uh, uh, Luke is writing this for a reason. And, and so he gives this long sermon by, by, uh, by Stephen, who's not even an apostle. It's called the Acts of the Apostles, but he's showing the Holy Spirit at work. And he's showing that as Christ did, so the Holy Spirit is continuing to do, and he's, he's validating the ministry of Paul. And here, if we look at uh, Acts 13, in verse 46, then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold, it's the same Holy Spirit, and said, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing you put it from you, says the same message, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. That's what Christ was saying. And so now Christ is sending Paul, and, and they're, they're, they're showing that they're, they are, in fact, the children of their forefathers. And they're unworthy of everlasting life. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so has the Lord commanded us, saying, 
I have sent you to be a light of the Gentiles, and that you should be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. So this is all to Theophilus. So Theophilus is connecting the dots. He's seeing what Christ did. He's seeing what the apostles did uh, and, and what the faithful uh, brethren were doing. And now he's seeing what Paul is doing. And he's seeing a consistency, a consistent message, a consistent behavior, and a consistent boldness of the Holy Spirit as a result of Pentecost. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. And they glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coast. Same story, you know, different, different players, but it's the same story. Whether it's Peter and John or Stephen or Paul and Barnabas, it's always the same. It's the same script that the truth comes. They can't handle the truth. They don't want the truth. They reject the truth and they persecute the, those who are bringing the truth. Back to Acts 7, verse 55. But he, that is Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God. What, what a blessing. And this is, again, this is what, what comes of that kind of boldness. Uh, we see things, we understand things, we see things in the scripture that encourage us. Remember that the Holy Spirit is the comforter and it gives us comfort. And so we see things and we understand things. And here, uh, Stephen was given this gift of a vision that he actually could see what was happening in heaven. Very different from what was happening on earth. So that, that occult belief, uh, as, in, as above, so below, it's actually the opposite. You know, what was going on above, the opposite was happening below. Because below is, is the God of this world. Below is Satan's world. Above is God's world, God's kingdom. And it is coming to replace Satan's world. And so here, being full of the Holy Spirit. So again, he began the passage by saying Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. He then shows how harsh Stephen was to these, these uh, scribes and Pharisees. And then he says, at the end, he's being full of the Holy Spirit. He continues to be the, full of the Holy Spirit. So that harshness that we see is an act of agape love. It, it is how the Holy Spirit is, how Jesus Christ would behave if he was in Stephen's place. Because these are the acts of the Holy Spirit. Christ is the head. The church is the body. Christ is moving the body according to the, the will of the Holy uh, according to his Holy Spirit, according to his will. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked up steadfastly into heaven. And he saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing on the right hand of God. So Christ was martyred. Now this is the, the next martyr after Christ. We would say the first Christian martyr. And Christ is so excited that he's standing. He told them, you're going to be my martyrs. And now here's the first faithful one. And it has Jesus, instead of being seated at Christ's right hand, Stephen sees him standing. What encouragement. I wonder if we can behave in ways today that will get Jesus to stand up. That's a question we should all ponder. You know, do we, do we excite Jesus and the Father or do we disappoint them? So here Jesus is excited. He's standing at the right hand of God. And then, Peter, and then Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. He's just telling them, this, this is what I see. This is, you know, it's sort of like open bracket, close bracket. You know, the opening bracket is Joseph 
saying to his brothers, I've dreamed a dream, and this is what I see. Now the closed bracket is Stephen saying, I have a vision, this is what I see. And it's the same response. They truly are the children of their forefathers. And they are constantly rebelling against the Holy Spirit. And so here it says, they cried out, verse 57, then they cried out with a loud voice. They, they can't stand it. They just cannot handle this. And they stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. So they were just all united that this is a horrible thing that he's saying and cast him out of the city and they stoned him. They stoned him. He's bringing the message of Christ and they stoned him. But Christ was standing on this. This, this man will live again. He knew he would live again. Christ knows that he will live again. And he's asked them to do this. Be my faithful witnesses. You be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And so here we have the first of many, many martyrs for Christ. Many, many. This, this Saturn religion of, of Nimrod control continues. We, we think we're so sophisticated. But it's the same ideologies from way back thousands of years ago continuing to, to pervade our culture. It's, you know, people die, ideas don't die. And, and these ideologies continue. And so this, this Saturn cult, this, this culture of, of worshipping the devil and, and trying to control and, and enslave men, it continues. But here we have the first martyr for Christ and he's going to be back as a king and a ruler. And he's going to help Christ establish liberty with the good news of the kingdom of God when it's established. So they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And now he introduces Saul. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. So he talked about earlier the feet of the apostles and all the things that happened at the feet of the apostles. And now at the feet of this man, Saul, they're laying down their clothes so that they can, so whatever garments they're wearing, they're taking them off. And so he's supporting them so that they can now stone uh, Stephen to death. And he's introducing Saul. He's setting up a contrast between the Holy Spirit and Saul. And also, I personally believe that Saul saw the face of Stephen. And he heard the message that Stephen preached. And I'm, I'm, I feel that in the back of his mind, these things were playing on him. And when he gets struck down, he's able to connect the dots. And, and it, his conscience will bother him after this. But, but I think that's why Luke is uh, calling it out here. First of all, to show the contrast and show Theophilus that only by a miracle could Saul be turned around. Because he's, on the, he's in the opposite camp. There's the camp of Christ and there's the camp of Satan. And Saul is in the camp of Satan. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God. This is the man that spoke to them so harshly, out of love. Calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice. This is vision. This is vision. And every Christian needs to have this kind of vision. Christianity is not once a week, you know, listen to a sermon, put your feet up, have a coffee, and then just hope that everything goes well. And, and you know, believe the Lord that you know the gospel of health and wealth. This is Christianity. It's all about Christ. It's all about proclaiming liberty to those who are enslaved. It's all about proclaiming the good news. 
and never compromising and being faithful to the end. And that's what that's the example that uh, Christ is showing us here. He kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So that is such an act of mercy because Christ said, woe unto you that the, the blood of all the righteous men from Abel down now through to Stephen, all of this blood is going to be on you and you're going to be held account to, uh, to account to it. Stephen understands this and his dying breath is that God would not hold them accountable. And certainly that includes uh, the Apostle Paul, that he's praying for their repentance, he's praying for their forgiveness. And at least with Saul, he does turn around and, and hopefully there are others. And even today, there is such hatred against Christianity and, and we don't hate back. We pray that God will forgive and that will lead people to repentance and that they'll open the Bible and study it and see if these things are so. Because Christ is calling all men to repentance. And so we just pray for you, if you're listening to this message for the first time, that you'll open the Bible, that you'll study, you'll search these things, and that you'll come to Christ, come to repentance. He only wants what's good. And don't be like these uh, horrible uh, people who are governed by uh, Satan, who just reject and reject and reject as much as the Holy Spirit is working, trying to bring them love, trying to bring them truth. So I certainly hope that you study, uh, enjoyed the study today, Acts chapter 7. Next week, I will not be here. I won't be able to be in the studio. So we'll have no study next week. We'll continue with Acts chapter 8 the week after next. I believe that's August 24th. So no study next week. I won't be in the studio. Uh, but the following week, we'll continue with Acts chapter 8. I'll hop over to the uh, chat now. And certainly thank you for joining us. Hope you got a lot out of this study. And again... Uh, there's, there's basically two agendas in the world. There's the Saturnalia agenda. It comes in different forms and shapes and sizes. And there's Christ. And I certainly am praying that you'll choose Christ and be faithful to death.